following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, good morning, friends. If you'll open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy this morning, the second letter of Paul to Timothy. What a blessing it is to be with you and before you this morning. Something special about preaching through 2 Timothy is just the fact of the overarching message to all Christians, but then also specifically to those in the the preaching and teaching ministries, which... um, it's just a, it's been a true blessing for my study time and to be able to come before you like this. Believe it or not, as I'm preaching, it's not even just preaching to you. It's preaching to myself these words and being reminded of the clarity of God's word and the empowerment that comes with his word and the true spirit-filled grace that comes with it. And so, friends, uh, today we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 18. But if you'll indulge me, I'd like to start off in the beginning and just read all of chapter 1 this morning. It's not a very long chapter, and so I'd like to just build there and we'll we'll go through it. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, And I I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. And the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that 
all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly, and he found me. May the Lord grant him mercy, grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, last week we had the opportunity to see Paul speak to a, a few different areas before we get into our text here. And first, we saw Paul remember God's goodness. As he remembered the gift of Timothy as a fellow worker, he recalled God's care for both Paul and Timothy in these times, right? He talks about being able to go before him constantly in prayer. He remembers the blessing that Timothy was to him as he says, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Secondly, we saw Paul recalling Timothy's faith. We see him speak about this sincere faith that characterized his grandmother and his mother, and that echoed into Timothy's life as well. Timothy had received genuine faith in the Lord, like by himself. It wasn't something that he had kind of just followed in the family, but no, this was a genuine faith that belonged to him, that the Lord had granted to him. Our desire for all of our children And third, we saw Paul call on Timothy to revitalize God's gift. As he told him to fan into flame the gift of God and recalled the reality that he was not given a spirit of fear. No, rather he was given one of power and love and self-control. So today as we come to the end of this chapter and we look at verses 8 through 18, Paul spends some significant time then building upon that and saying, because you've received these things, Because you've received this spirit, this gift, now I'm going to address any concerns that you may have when it comes to enduring suffering. Talks about not being ashamed, but rather being, in a way, unashamed and empowered empowered in in the gospel as he goes out to proclaim it. He simply says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel, nor should you be. As we look at our text today, I invite you to see three overarching points. First, as we look at verses 8 through 12, we will see Paul's call to accept your suffering. Second, in verses 13 and 14, we'll see Paul's call to align to God's, or sorry, align to good doctrine. And finally, in verses 15 through 18, we'll see Paul's call to aid others in suffering. And with that being said, brothers and sisters, let us just dive into our text this morning. Starting in verse 8, I'd like to read back through verses 8 through 12. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. 
but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So Paul starts off this section, he says, Therefore, looking back into verse 7, he says, Therefore, because God has given you this spirit, not of fear, not one that should be ashamed, not one that should be afraid, not one that should be cowardice. Remember, we looked at the Greek word last week, and it echoes that of being cowardice or shameful. It's not a good thing to be afraid in the sense that he's talking. But instead, God has given you a spirit of power and love and self-control. Because he's bestowed this upon you and your special gifting, how are you to respond? He says, do not be ashamed. Because you've been given these things, because you've been blessed in this way that God has called you out of darkness, that he is giving you his spirit as a believer, a spirit that is filled with power and love and self-control. You have no reason to be afraid. You have no reason to act in cowardice. And notice he gives two areas specifically that he wants Timothy to remember. He says, first, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. What is the testimony that he's talking about? He's talking about the gospel. Remember, Timothy is receiving this letter sometime in the mid to late 60s. This is an extremely hostile time for believers, those that follow the way, those that follow Christ. So Paul calls on Timothy to not be afraid of sharing this gospel in the midst of all that is going on around him. There's pagan worship. There's those that worship the king, the emperor. You have, obviously, the Jewish people that are persecuting the church as well. And he says, no, you're not to be afraid of this. You're not to show any sign of shame when it comes to witnessing the truth of the gospel, being associated with Christ, being known as one who fears and follows the Lord alone. And he says, nor of me, his prisoner. Paul also calls on Timothy to not be afraid or ashamed to stand with Paul. Paul is currently in prison in Rome and says, Timothy, stand firm. Don't be afraid to be associated with me. It could be costly. It could mean your own death. It could definitely mean your imprisonment. It could definitely mean being beaten. It could be mocked and ridiculed, driven out of places, harassed. But he says, do not be afraid to be associated with me. Notice that Paul doesn't just say that he's a prisoner of Rome, but he says, of me, his prisoner. Who is this he is talking about, right? He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting because he's not just saying, of me, a prisoner, A prisoner because I've been speaking for Christ or speaking on behalf of Christ in this world. No, he says, of a prisoner of Christ himself. How can he say such a thing? How can he say that Christ, he's a prisoner of Christ? Is Christ the one that threw him into the prison and locked the door behind him? Well, no, Christ didn't physically do that. He didn't lock it. He didn't send him to jail. 
However, we know that Christ is sovereign over every aspect of Paul's life as he is over every aspect of your lives here as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and even those that aren't. God is sovereign. Everything is being worked out for his glory and for the good of those he's called. And so Paul can then echo and he can say, this was all a part of Christ's plan. This is all a part of his plan. And so I am imprisoned because of Christ. Because Christ has deemed it so. Because before the foundation of the world, he has foreseen that this would be my end. This would be my destiny. This would be my future. Paul's imprisonment was resulting from his faithfulness to Christ. But also Christ uses it for his own glory and for the promotion of the gospel. I'm going to turn back real quick to Philippians. If you want to join me there in uh, chapter 1. trying to these papers are all tight today I'm having a hard time I apologize just one second my papers are all sticking together suddenly and I don't know why today of all days it sticks (laughs) I was like searching through it earlier today and I was like not having a problem but now there we go so Philippians chapter 1 verses 12 I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Talking about the damage that has been done, the suffering that he's experienced, everything that he's gone through. He says, this has served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. And to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So Paul is looking at this and he says, Christ is using this for his glory and for his good and for the promotion of his gospel, the only gospel, the only thing that saves. Take a moment to consider that. Who is this Christ that Paul was willing to suffer for? Consider who Christ is that he was deemed worth it. Paul looked at Christ, knowing what he had experienced, knowing what he had seen, and he said, it's all worth it. I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to be imprisoned. I'm willing to be shipwrecked. I'm willing to be beaten and mocked and ridiculed. Abused and slandered. I'm willing to do it all for the sake of Christ. And then turning back to 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says, Nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul continues, don't be ashamed of this gospel or of me. But instead, what is he to do? Share in the suffering. Paul doesn't give him a a request. He doesn't say, if you feel like it or if you're available, come join me in suffering. He doesn't say, if the time is right, go ahead and suffer for it. But if not, eh, you can turn from this. No, he says, this is by command. Share in the suffering. Share in the suffering. He asked him to, in a way, step out in faith. Somewhere he has not maybe gone fully before. Saying, Timothy, you have no reason to hide. But go out, knowing that you're going to experience all types of abuses and struggles. But share in the suffering. He uses the active imperative here. 
It's a command, right? But it's not something that's just a passive thing. It's an active thing. Share in it. Step into the suffering. Be willing to take it on. But not for his own sake. Not for a woe is me type of suffering, but rather for the gospel. So frequently we see people in our world today that take on suffering for the simple fact of their own kind of woe is me attitude. I'm not on social media, but if you are on social media, I'm sure you've seen numerous times where people post about things that have happened. Oh, my sandwich wasn't good today. Or, oh, the person at the store was mean to me. Or can you believe this guy that cut me off, right? Oh, my life is so hard and so challenging. Why do they do that, right? It's because of a desire for their own glory. It's a desire for others to feel for them. But Paul doesn't say, Timothy, do this so that others might care more for you. No, he says, do this for the gospel. Knowing that as Paul was suffering, God was using this suffering for the sake of promoting the gospel. He says, share in that suffering, brother, because when you do, God is going to use it for his glory, for the proclamation of his gospel, for the promotion of this goodness that he has given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy is called to bring the gospel in word and in his life and everything that he does. He's called to live an example, which naturally means that it will bring resentment. Friends, suffering is inevitable for the Christian life. Those who are living a godly life, suffering is inevitable. Suffering is not a punishment, but a a blessing. If you turn back to Acts chapter 5 and verse 41, I'd like to read that for you. Acts chapter 5 and verse 41. And he says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So you have the apostles arrested, right? They go before the Sadducees and they go before the council where they're judged. And when they leave, what happens? After they had been beat and charged not to speak in the name of Christ, they say, they don't say, woe is me. They say, glory to God. I got beat for his sake. I got beat because I was known as being one associated with Christ. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. So he asked the question, or I asked the question, so you see this now, and it says, Don't be ashamed. Suffer well, but how? How is he to suffer? How is he to not be ashamed? Paul doesn't leave him there. He says, by the power of God. God's power that Paul mentions earlier in discussing the spirit, right? This spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control that's given to every believer. Every one of you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, have that same spirit. You have a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. And it is through this power, the power that has called us unto salvation, the power that will keep us to the end, that we'll see in just a little bit. It is this power that has sustained Paul through every trial. It is this power that has 
been brought to brought you all through difficult times, that has brought Paul through difficult times, that brought Timothy through difficult times, brought every believer throughout history through difficult, challenging times. This is the power that Timothy is to rely on if he wants to not be ashamed and to suffer well for the gospel. And this is the same power that he goes on to say, right? Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not by our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Three words. Who saved us? As I was working on this sermon and studying, I spent a significant time just sitting there thinking about those words. Who saved us? Notice this deep theological truth that come out of it. It is not us saving ourselves from God's wrath, God's punishment for our sin. Paul makes it clear in these three words, these aren't probably frequently used as a verse or, or as words that can be said of predestination, of election, of God's sovereignty and salvation. But he says that God is the one who saved us. God is the one who called us out of darkness to light. God is the one who has made a way that we might be saved. God is the one who brings the gospel to the unrepentant sinner. God is the one who has predestined from, the found, from before the foundations of the world that the world would be created as it is, as we sit here today, and that there would be a fall, and that there would be one day his son who would come and who would die on a cross in our place for our sins, that each one of you might be able to hear the gospel. That's all because of God's working. That is all because God had predestined this, because God is the one who saved us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, he says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons, or to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Romans 8, 28 through 30, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And even Christ in John chapter 15 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling? What is this holy calling that Paul is talking about? He is not talking here about the calling that all should repent and believe. That is the case. He has called all everywhere to repent and believe in Christ alone. Rather, he's speaking to those that have already been saved. Those who are believers that have been called to a holy life. A life that is characterized by humble obedience to God himself. A life that could be characterized as holy It is calling us to stand with Paul and say, we are in a clear conscience because we have confessed our sin and we have trusted in Christ alone. 
not by our own works though, right? We have not trusted him by our, of our own self. It says not by our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. He reaffirms the statement earlier, right? Who saved us? God saving us and calling us to this holy calling is not by our own works. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. It is solely by his own purpose and grace. Why is that? Why is it by his own purpose and grace? Because the perfect God of the universe, the one who is both the just and the justifier, the God who created and sustains all things, said so. We need to say nothing more. Justin and I were talking earlier this week of the question of why are things the way they are? Sometimes I think as unbelievers, as even believers, we look at things and we say, why, Lord, why would you do it this way? It doesn't make sense. We think so highly of ourselves to think that we could do better, right? But the irony is, obviously, we can never do better. But we still ask the question, why, Lord? Because he said so. Because before the foundations of the world, God predestined it to be this way. Because through this, his glory would be made manifest to the extremes. And that there would be a remnant that would be saved for his people. A people that could experience the joy and the glory and the amazing life eternally with him. And Paul continues here and he says, Not because of your works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This was from eternity past, right? This salvation, this holy calling, this purpose and grace were from before the beginning. This was not some plan B. This was not something that God didn't know what was going to happen and said, oh man, Adam and Eve sinned. What do I do now? I hadn't planned for this. No, from before the foundations of the world, God knew. God had a plan. He knew from eternity past that he would send his only son to die on a cross in our place for our sins as the only means of salvation for those who were called. Our destiny, our future, everything that we are and everything that we do was determined from before the world began. Not even just because, not even before we were born, right? Not even before our parents conceived us, not even before... Our grandparents conceived our parents. No, from before eternity passed, before the world was created, we were determined. John chapter 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, Christ talking about himself, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. God had a plan before the foundation of the world. That Christ would be glorified through the cross. Ephesians chapter 3. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Jesus Christ our Lord. An eternal purpose before the foundations of the world. Which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And looking at verse 10 now. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus 
who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. God's divine plan from eternity past has been made manifest through the appearing of the Savior, Jesus Christ. We are talking about Christ's first coming to this earth, right? And how God had made known his plan through Christ. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, talking about Christ, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Christ's coming to the earth made manifest God's plan for salvation to fulfill all of the promises of the Old Testament, to fulfill his plans to inaugurate his kingdom, that one day it might be completed in the new heavens and the new earth when Christ returns. And he says, who abolished death and brought life and immortality through the gospel. To abolish means to destroy, to do away with, to cause to fall. Now, how do we understand that? Christ abolished death. We know death still occurs, right? Even for believers. All of us here have experienced death of family members, death of friends. So how do we understand how death still happens if Christ has abolished it? Paul knows that death is coming even for him as he's writing this letter. He knows that it's going to come for Timothy down the road. Doesn't know when, but it will come. For believers, though, there's a difference. Death is no longer the end. It is not something that should instill fear and worry and concern. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death has no sting any longer with Christ. Christ did not just abolish death, though. He brought immortality and life through the gospel. It is only Christ that a, it is only through Christ that a person can be brought to life. Each of us is alive today, right? All of us are breathing. You can take a good breath of fresh air in here. However, if you are not a believer, You're spiritually dead. And Christ has made a way that we might be made alive again. And when we look back at the Genesis story in the very beginning, God tells Adam and Eve, you shall surely die if you eat this fruit. Now the serpent comes and deceives, right? He says, you won't die. Knowing that physically, at that very moment, they take a bite of whatever this fruit is, they will not die. And that is true. They did not die. That statement in and of itself was truthful. They did not die in that very moment physically. But spiritually they did. They were cut off. There was a great divorce that had happened between God and his people, Adam and Eve. They were separated. They were cast out of the garden. Everything that was perfect was now made hard. Eve would bring forth children in pain. Adam would struggle to bring forth fruit from the garden, from the land again. Where they had abundance, now everything would be hard. 
Because there had been a divorce between God and his people. Because they had disobeyed him. They were spiritually dead. And with spiritual death, eventually came physical death. And that is the case for all of us here. As we then follow in Adam and Eve, we are spiritually dead. But it's only through Christ that we can then say, with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But this is a past tense, right? We were dead spiritually, but now we are made alive in Christ. And Paul says that it is about this for which he has been appointed preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Paul was commissioned at his conversion for a special role in the early church. And he lays it out here. He says that he was appointed for kind of a threefold purpose. Preacher, a proclaimer, a messenger to announce this gospel. An apostle, one who has seen the risen Christ and has been given authority in the church. And then a teacher, one who takes this message that he preaches, that he has brought with the authority of God, and then interprets it and gives understanding to those who he takes it to. And he says, which is why I suffer as I do. Paul acknowledged that his role as preacher and apostle and teacher was his cause for suffering. He suffered because he was faithful to the gospel that had saved him. He suffered because he had boldly proclaimed, he had boldly preached the gospel as one with authority because of his apostleship, right? Because he'd been given this authority and he interpreted the word of God with divine knowledge and insight. Hence why you see throughout Paul's letters, he references back to the Old Testament so regularly, right? He's taking all of these things and he's teaching the people how to understand them properly in light of this Christ, this Messiah who has come to save them. So he is a threefold person. He's a, he's a threefold commission of preacher and apostle and teacher. John MacArthur makes a really nice way of putting it. He says, Very often, the price of devotion to divine duty is affliction by the world. When we live according to our divine calling upon our lives as believers to go out and preach this gospel, to live according to his word, to live in holiness and humble submission before him, affliction will come. But notice what Paul says, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the last day what has been entrusted to me. Paul comes back and reiterates why Timothy should not be ashamed, and uses his own life as his example He says, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Paul literally knows no shame in following Christ and faithfully proclaiming him. But why? Because he knows whom he believed. He knows with certainty. The Greek word here emphasizes a sense of certainty, having seen it with your very eyes, being able to say, I know for a fact, just like you can look out right now and say, I know for a fact that the sun is shining. He says, I know for a fact that Christ is the Messiah, the one who died on our behalf. Paul knows with certainty the object of his belief. It's the same verse that is used in Matthew chapter 6, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. The father knows. 
he knows for a fact with certainty. We know this for a fact, what you need, right? Before you ask him. And Paul uses the same verb here to say, I know the Christ in whom I believed. Paul has a saving knowledge. And notice this is not saying he has believed in the past. This is the perfect tense here. Meaning it wasn't just something that was in the past. One time he saw him and he was like, yeah, I believe I saw Christ risen there. No, this is an ongoing belief. This is something that we should look to as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and echo with Paul and say, I know whom I believe. And because I know whom I believe, I will not be ashamed of him. I can't echo enough the reality of the beauty of when you know Christ. When you know him, you have nothing to be ashamed about. You have nothing to fear. For who is Christ? Who is our God? He is a God that is faithful. He is a God who is perfect in all of his ways. He's a God who is sovereign. He's a God that Paul will go on to say here, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This is the God whom Christ, or that Paul believes in. This is the Christ that Paul believes in. Based on everything that he has previously stated about God, everything that God has done and who he is, He says, I am convinced. There's absolutely no doubt in the mind of Paul. He is certain then that God can guard what has been entrusted to him. What is he talking about? What's been entrusted to Paul? Well, there's a couple ways that this can be taken. First, it could be understood that he's talking about the gospel. God will sustain within Paul the gospel and bring him to completion, which is true. Amen. What God has began, he will bring to completion. Secondly, he could be talking about Paul's own life. That God will sustain him until the appropriate time of his death, which is true as well. I lean more towards the first because I think Paul was more concerned rather than with his life than that of being faithful to this gospel and to Christ. Paul believes truly that God is steadfast and that he is faithful and that what he has begun, he will indeed bring to completion. What hope that gives us as believers to know that God indeed will bring to completion that which he started. You know, there's many Christian or like belief systems out there, interpretations of scripture that say you can lose your salvation. That say you can kind of have it and then give it up and then get it back and then give it up and then give it back. And eventually God will just tell you no more. But that's not what Paul teaches here. No, he says, God will complete what he has begun. He will sustain and he will guard that which he has started. And he says, until that day, until the day that either Christ returns or until the day that Christ calls us home, we can be certain that God will sustain us. Brothers and sisters, throughout these five verses, we see again and again Paul give give clear-cut reasons as to why Timothy, and in turn us, should not be ashamed of this gospel if we are true believers in it. Instead of being ashamed, we should openly proclaim it, he says, knowing that it will bring suffering. And he doesn't say suffer just because of a noble or admirable, admirable reason or because you desire to be glorified yourself by man. No, he says, suffer because that is the life of the believer and the Lord Jesus Christ. And through that suffering, the Lord will use it for his glory and for your good 
and even for the good of those that are around you. Remember, when you suffer, you do not do so alone. No, not alone, not without help. You have the power of God with you. You have the God who, through this power, called you unto salvation, who, through this power, sustains you, who gives you breath this very moment. That is the God who will help you to suffer well for his sake. So as we've seen, this first point, accept your suffering, I invite you now to turn your attention to verses 13 and 14 as we look at Paul's call to align to sound doctrine or good doctrine. Verses 13 and 14 follow the pattern of sound of the sound word that I, you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul calls on Timothy to follow. The Greek word is echo, meaning like echo, right? To follow or to hold closely, to be joined to the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Essentially, Paul is telling Timothy, follow the teaching and the lifestyle that I have presented to you. Paul is telling Timothy to stand firm as a believer. This means that Timothy's life should be one where his speech, his actions, his thoughts, every aspect should be characterized by that of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth that is found in the Word of God. That's the same for you here this morning. You are to be characterized in every aspect of your life as following the pattern or the standard of the Word of God. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus Paul, though, puts an extra thought here, right? He could have just left it there. He says, follow the pattern, done. But he says, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't just tell him to follow as if a robot or a cold and mechanical type of way, looking through the text and saying, okay, I need to do this and then this and then this and then this. No, because if that was the case, we'd all become like the Pharisees. We'd become legalistic. We'd be looking solely at the text, not for the power that's at work within it. We'd be looking at the text to say, Lord, what are the things that I need to do to earn my own salvation here? I need to follow step one and then step two and then step three and then step four and step four A and step four B and then step five and I'll reach my way. That's not what he says. He says, in faith and in love that are in Christ Jesus. Timothy and our lives The way that we live this out should be followed in sound doctrine, yes. Following the word of God, yes, amen. But it should be done in faith and in love that are in Christ Jesus. We shouldn't be doing things in a simply cold and robotic way as if we're just complete legalistic Pharisees where we're just trying to grasp at the the commands and say, I need to do this and now I need to do this and now I need to do that. No, he says, do this out of faith and love. Do this because you love God and you love Christ and you desire to follow him. Do it out of faith, knowing that Christ has already saved you. And your only proper response to him is to obey his commands because you love him so much. And you desire to show faithful obedience to him. And even when we go out to defend the word of God, he's saying, do this with faith and love. The truth 
is of utmost importance. We need to hold that to a high standard, and the truth is the Word of God. But if we do it in a simply robotic kind of way, we create unnecessary animosity, unnecessary anger. The gospel, don't worry, is offensive. It hurts. When said correctly, it hurts. And if you're not saying it correctly, you're not saying the gospel. So the gospel hurts, right? The reality is, is that when I go out and I look at somebody and I say, Sinner, you are called unto repentance and faith because Christ came and died on a cross in your place for your sin. When you tell them that they have sinned against an almighty and perfect God, right away you have offended. Because then they're going to say, well, I haven't sinned. What have I done that was so awful? Well, yeah, it's okay to cheat once in a while. Yeah, it's okay to, you know, sometimes you need to lie. Sometimes you can't help yourself. It's it's just human nature that you lust after others. It's offensive to tell a person that they have fallen into sin, that they are a sinner before the Almighty God, and that they are in need of salvation. But we shouldn't stop there. The gospel is naturally offensive to all, and we don't need to add to it by being harsh or unloving or cold and robotic, saying, you need to do this, and now you need to do this. No, we need to come in love and in faith, because that is what Christ echoed for us. That is what Paul lived as. Was he, un- was he untruthful? Did he ever lie to the people when he was proclaiming the truth of the gospel? No, that doesn't mean that loving means come as you are and you can keep your sin. No, he was brutally honest with them. We know that he was brutally honest telling them, like he does in 1 Corinthians, stop what you're doing. You are sinning against an almighty God. You have been called to something else. Repent and believe on him. He's saying things that are not easy to hear, but he also is not doing that out of uh, without love or without faith. We can trust that God will give us all we need to share his truth, to share the truth of the gospel and to defend his word. And we continue, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Therefore, since God has given us the power to, or God has the power to guard us, right? And that he has given us something that he has entrusted us with and he's going to guard it. He can also give us this power through the Holy Spirit to guard the deposit that has been entrusted to us. So he gives us both his guarding, but then he also gives us his spirit to guard it ourselves. Paul says, indeed, the Lord has the ability and will guard what he has entrusted. He also calls us to guard the good deposit as well. But notice he doesn't ask you to do it by yourself. That's the beauty of all of the promises, right? Every time we look at a promise throughout the Old Testament, God does not rely on us. He doesn't say, okay, I'm going to do this part, you're going to do this part, and when you don't, it's done. He says, I'm going to do this part, you're going to do this part, and when we fail, because we will, we always do, he says, don't worry, I still have your part too. He says, by the Holy Spirit that dwells in you, he's given us his spirit to be able to guard the deposit, knowing that we can't do it by ourselves. Because if he was to do that, we would fail. We'd fail to guard the deposit. We'd fail to guard this gift of the Holy Spirit, this gift of the gospel that's been entrusted to us. The gift of whatever skill that he has given us for his glory, for the good of the church. 
God doesn't leave us to our own ability, knowing we are not capable at all on our own, right? But he gives us his spirit as believers. Then he, the spirit, can enable us to guard what has been given. How great is that, that we don't have to rely on ourselves? He's already said, not for salvation, because we can't do it on our own. And now he echoes it with guarding something, guarding this deposit. He says, if I give it to you, you're going to mess it up. I see it. I know you. I know your general nature. I know that you were dust, right? I know that you were imperfect. I know that you were a sinner. You've been called. You were saved. You were made just and righteous before the Almighty God, but you still sin. You still fail. You're still flawed. You haven't been glorified yet. And since you haven't, since you're ongoing in sanctification, I will give my spirit to enable you to do this. So brothers and sisters, do you see what Paul says to Timothy and what is being said to us here as well? You've been entrusted with a beautiful gift if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you are called to guard it, but not alone. Through the power of the Holy Spirit and by walking in a pattern of the sound words that have been given to you, through God's word, you have the ability to walk in a way that guards this deposit. Sometimes we forget that Paul is writing this letter. And as Timothy's reading it, he doesn't have the full canon of scripture. Sometimes it's easy for us to assume that this Bible that we all have in our hands or on our phones is been around forever. And they just, they all had this, they all looked at it, they all knew it. They didn't know it. Timothy was relying on Old Testament text. He was relying on the letters that he received from Paul. He was relying on any little bit that he got from maybe another church or another area. They were relying on letters that were circulating between churches. But it was very difficult, right? Because each letter, if there was going to be multiples, had to be handwritten. There's no printing press. There's no ability for a copier machine, right? They never went to slap the paper down and press the button. And so every single letter had to be hand copied. And it could only be at one place at one time. They had no internet to look it up. They had no ability to get it to other people without somebody going and copying it. Even before the printing press, right? Every Bible was handwritten, mostly by monks sitting in monasteries. That was one of the key aspects of a monastery was that there would be monks that would sit day in and day out copying the Bible word for word. Word for word, word for word, to be able to make copies to send out to other areas. And on top of that, large swaths of the population were not even literate to be able to read it. And now we have the entirety of God's canon before us. Some of us even have collections of Bibles. I'm not guilty completely of that. I have a little bit of a collection starting. But we have collections of Bibles God has given us the full biblical text, the full canon, his word, and we can walk then in accordance with it. If Timothy was called to follow in the sound pattern, the sound doctrine that had been given to him through the words of Paul, through the few letters that he had, maybe some copies of things from the Old Testament, from the teaching of his grandmother and his mother, how much more should we be able to follow him in kind with Timothy, having the full text in front of us, having the full and entire beautiful view of who our God is as he has laid out and revealed for us.
So, brothers and sisters, we have seen Paul's call to accept your suffering and to align to sound doctrine. Let us close out with these final four verses as we look at our final point. Paul's call to aid others in suffering. Reading from verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know the service he rendered at Ephesus. You're all aware. Or he says, you're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Among two he names here, Phygelus and Hermogenes. So we have seen that Paul is sitting in Rome, in prison, awaiting his coming sentence. And he says, all turned from him. Paul goes on to contrast himself and what he has told Timothy to do, right? He says, not be ashamed, neither of the gospel or of Paul. And then he, con- he gives this contrast and he says, but here are two brothers, or supposed brothers, men that walked with me, that were ashamed of me, that walked away. He has said that he is not ashamed and that he's called Timothy to not be ashamed either of this gospel, of Paul himself. And he says, but... Here are two men that were. These men were in Asia. And as soon as Paul was arrested, they fled. They left him. They didn't stand up with him. They didn't stand for him. They didn't come back to visit him in prison. No, they, they've left him. This seems to be almost heavy on Paul's mind as he talks about the reality. I can only imagine as you're writing to a, a faithful brother and you're thinking of these two men that weighs heavy on your heart. Not only for the sake of the hurt that you might feel from their leaving you, but for the sake of their own souls. Where are they truly at with the Lord? They were more concerned about their own self-preservation. They were afraid of being persecuted and imprisoned and possibly killed. They saw the reality of what was going to come for them if they continued with Paul. And so they left. Think about the pain that would cause Lord knows, I'm sure many of you over time have possibly lost friends. Even some probably lost friends or family over the sake of this gospel, over the sake of this word. And you know the pain that that must endure, right? You know the pain that you've experienced with that. And I can only imagine that for Paul, having believed that these men were faithful to the word, that they had worked alongside him in this ministry, up and deserted him excruciating in ways. Paul had given himself for these men. He had put his own life on, his, on the line to proclaim the gospel to them. He had suffered for the sake of the gospel being known to these two men that he mentions. And as soon as the heat is turned on, they run. Those two men he mentions are never mentioned again anywhere else in the biblical text. It was interesting because uh, the Greek word that kind of the phygelus, the name comes from, phygelos, means little fugitive. Like one that's running away. And Hermogenes, meaning born of Hermes, a protector of travelers, according to Greek, 
like Greek religious beliefs of the time. And so the irony of it, right, that you have two men, one who is considered to be a little fugitive by name and another who is supposed to be the protector. And you see the irony of that, right? They, they fled. He doesn't protect the traveler, the messenger. And the other one lives up to his name and he flees. While we don't know anything more about them, one thing that they will go down for is being cowardice and ashamed. We'll never know if they had true faith, that they came to repentance and faith down the road somewhere. We never know if they ever repented for their leaving Paul, for denying the Lord, denying Paul. But forevermore, they'll be known as those that turn from him. What a tragic reality that is. It hurts my heart just to even think that people go down in this way, that this is how they're remembered. And going on, he says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Paul prays for this household of a brother, and he asks that the mercy would be granted from the Lord. Based on uh, chapter 4, verse 19 of 2 Timothy, we can assume that he lived close to Ephesus, Onesiphorus, because he tells Timothy to go and greet the household. This brother had no fear. No shame in reference to being associated with Paul. He gives almost this contrast again. He says, here's two brothers that fled and here's a brother that stood firm with me. He says, Timothy, look at this brother. Be this brother. It appears that he also ministered to Paul. He says, he often, often, ongoing refreshments and he was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Onesiphorus went to Rome, whether that was on business or in search of Paul, we don't really know. It's assumed that he was there on business. However, when he got there, he searched for Paul. It gives us a sense of significant time and energy and even possibly danger. Talk about stepping into the lion's den. He's stepping into the lion's den looking for the mouse, right? He's like walking into Rome whereas the central part of the Roman Empire, of all of the culture is there. You have Nero, who is ruling over the land from Rome, at this time persecuting Christians in large numbers. You have Christians that are dying on the regular in Rome. And you have this brother come in and say, hey, have you guys heard of Paul? Where is he? You know the guy that firmly believes in Christ and is proclaiming him? Yeah, I want to visit that guy. I want to see him. What, what, what prison did you send him to? Where is he sitting? Talk about a hotbed, right? Talk about really stepping into this lion's den where people are just anxiously waiting for the death of Paul. Anxiously waiting for him to be completely done away with. Watching as Christians were being torn limb from limb in pits with animals. Watching as Christians were being burned at stakes watching as they were being stoned and beaten. And you have this brother say, where's Paul? The the one that some might even call the chief among the believers at this time, the one who is actively preaching this gospel. Where is he? That's the one I care to see. And Paul says, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Paul prays in deep appreciation and love for this brother. 
that the Lord may grant him mercy on that day, that day of judgment, that end day. We get this beautiful contrast again. I just, what a beautiful message we see here, right? Because we see these two men who will go down as being ones that abandoned Paul. But then we see this one man in his household that were faithful to God and to Christ and to this gospel. And we're not ashamed of the one who is being used for the proclamation of it. No, he's not even not ashamed, but he searches him out. He seeks him out that he might care for him. We can learn a lot from these final verses. Don't be ashamed or cowardice, but stand firm in the gospel. Our actions and our services matter even when we are not the preacher. So frequently we see the preacher of a ministry being the one that everyone knows. Not thinking about those that are in service that make this ministry possible. Notice Onesiphorus is never mentioned as a preacher or a teacher. Just one who served Paul. But we have him in the biblical text as an example of a brother who faithfully loved. Who lived out his call. Who lived out this call to be faithful and brotherly love and affection for, the, for another. And so it echoes for all of us. Each of us, each calling, each purpose that we've been given... No matter what your gifting is, is of importance because God uses it for his glory and for the good of his church. Thirdly, we see that it is once again all right for us to address false teachers and individuals who become apostate by name. Many within the Christian world today have taken it to be this, well, God's love. And so we're going to take that to an extreme not even in the way that God describes his own love, not even in the way that God declares his own love. We're going to take it to how we want it to be. And we're not going to call anyone out. We're not going to say any name of a false teacher. We're not going to say anything bad about them. We're just going to sit and keep quiet because we don't want to be offensive. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Well, we don't want to go against anyone. But we see even within God's word, men who fail to live according to what the word says fail to live according to the ministry that they were called to or seemingly called to. And so we have every right to address false teachers. We have every right to be honest and truthful in saying so-and-so person is wrong in what they are teaching. So-and-so person is leading men and women astray. We have the right as believers to stand firm in this gospel and to hold faithfully to it. So what? We come to the end of our text here. So what? This is the classic question that should be asked at the end of every sermon and every Bible study that you do. So what? I've read the text. Now what am I supposed to do with it? How does this impact me? What am I supposed to take away that I might walk more in line with God's word and humble obedience to him? How is the Lord trying to enrich me for his glory and for my good? Well, there's a few takeaways that I hope you will take from this that will sink deep into your heart and that will guide you in your walk with Christ. First, do not be ashamed of the Lord or his gospel. We have no need to be ashamed if we are truly believers, for we know who our God is. Remember, we are called to go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We cannot do that if we are ashamed. 
However, we see some simple things that Paul pointed out. We can have trust in our God, for he is faithful. He will guard the deposit entrusted to us. So because of that, we can step out in faith, knowing that we should not be ashamed. Second, share in suffering. Brothers and sisters, we live in a very, very different time from Timothy and Paul. We look out on our world, and I can go out on the street today and talk to somebody about Christ, and my suffering that I may experience is very different from Timothy or Paul experienced. We see, I'm sure many of you have seen the man that's probably walking up and down Maine here with his blowhorn and a Bible. He experiences probably very different suffering from what Paul and Timothy experienced. Our culture is just different. Our times are different. But one thing that isn't different is the gospel. It's not pleasant, as we talked about, for anyone to hear. Because it says that you are wrong and God is right. You are a sinner and he is perfect. You deserve wrath and damnation and hell for all eternity. That is what you deserve. That's what the gospel says. But then it gives a way out, right? It says that there's only one way though. One means of salvation. And it's not by anything you can do. You can't work your way there. It goes against every grain of what you think. Because every one of us believes that in our hearts, I can do it. I can make it if I try hard enough. But that's not the truth. That's not what the gospel teaches. That's not what's fact. So it goes against everything. So if you're sharing this gospel, you should be prepared to suffer because it is unpleasant to the hearer. It will occur that you will suffer. Our suffering may be different, but it will occur. So suffer well. As our culture seems to slip deeper and deeper and deeper into darkness, we can be certain that persecution and suffering will only increase. Now the call is to stand firm. Share in suffering. I saw just a short video the other day of a man. I don't, didn't even see what he was talking about. All I saw was the picture of his Bible on the ground being kicked around by people where he was proclaiming something from it. I don't even know if the man was a firm believer in the Lord Jesus Christ or anything. I just saw a Bible being kicked around. And then when he tried to get it back, it was picked up and thrown into a porter potty toilet. Suffering is happening in our, in our culture today. You think that sounds awful and it sounds atrocious to us because we live in this culture where it's been so accepting of Christianity. Even if people didn't want to believe it, no one really came out and said, no, we don't like it. Stop, shut up, keep it quiet. No one has said those things. Now it's happening. Be prepared to suffer and suffer well. You have the power of God with you. Have his spirit working in you. Suffer well. Third, Follow the uh, pattern of the sound words that you have heard. You've been given the word of God as we talked about, the full canon of his text. You have been given a local church where, speaking both for myself and for the other men that have stepped into this pulpit, I know that we desire week in and week out to bring you truth. And we work diligently to do so. We don't take this flippantly. My very wife asked me on the way over, how are you feeling? And I said, I can feel the weight. I can feel the weight as it comes down upon me. As we prayed before the service, Justin prayed and he said, May the weight be on our hearts. We desire to bring you truth. We desire to do so diligently. 
You have fellow men and women around you who are serious about the things of God. You have access to all sorts of doctrinally sound teaching. Follow the pattern. You have access to gain the knowledge of God's word and his will through his text and what it means to follow it. So do it. Follow the pattern of the sound words. And finally, care for one another in suffering. As I mentioned, we get two types of people in these final verses, right? Those who turn from him and the gospel that he preached. And they will go down in history forever as those that did so. And then we have Onesiphorus, who diligently searched out Paul in his suffering and imprisonment to care for him. Whatever that may mean, whether that was bringing him food or just providing him with encouragement, loving him, praying with him. Brothers and sisters, we are guilty, even in the church today, of being shallow. We ask one another, how's it going, right? I think on a regular basis, most of us in our conversations say, hey, how are you doing? How's it going? What's going on with you? And what is the classic answer? Ah, good. All right. Things are all right. Yeah, nothing wrong. Nothing going on. So frequently, we are slow to share our burdens and our struggles with one another, which I completely understand. It takes time, and it means building trust, which is something that we should strive for in the church ever more, more so than any other relationship. Within the church, we should strive to have trust with one another to the sense where we can actually come to one another to express our burdens and our worries and our concerns, to express the struggles that we are going through. And then, when a brother or sister finally does that with you, the response is there. How can you serve them? How can you seek them out for prayer, for sharing, for building them up? How can you help to meet their needs? I know that I have failed to do that at times, and for that, my heart is heavy. May we all strive evermore to meet the needs of one, one another, brother and sister. May we strive to share in the struggles. And may we follow then in the footsteps of Onesiphorus and seek diligently for our brothers and our sisters to bring them encouragement and help meet their needs. And so we have four things to close out with there. First, do not be ashamed. Second, share in suffering. Third, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard and forth provide aid to those in suffering friends as we close today let us close in prayer